Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. In this episode, my guest is Dan Shaw, an author and researcher who specialises in geomancy, an area of magic, or science, depending on your viewpoint, that is concerned with understanding the unseen energies of the Earth. The main body of his work focuses on vortexes, specific areas of the globe where these energies are focused, and understanding what they are, how they can be detected, and their importance to humankind going back many millennia. Indeed, Dan believes it is likely that many past civilizations had an intimate understanding of these vortexes, and this can be seen in the many monumental structures that remain all across the globe, whose construction and purpose remain as enigmatic as ever, and provide a fascinating glimpse into the deep past of human history, one alive with lost technologies. Fascinating stuff as ever. Enjoy! Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. To begin with, just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in vortexes. Mm -hmm. Well, for me, vortexes are a healing tool, an extraordinary healing tool. I had a a long-standing interest in extraordinary healing tools. I started meditating at a young age. I was fortunate to be exposed to yoga at a relatively young age and uh, just had a lifelong interest in extraordinary healing tools. And when the Vortex research, I'll say the Vortex maps were really delivered to me on a silver platter, I recognized the vortexes or, or let's say paranormal places as an extraordinary healing tool. So that's how I came to vortex research. But I'm sure every one of your listeners, every vortex researcher comes to the study in a different way. Hmm. You talk about how you found that information. How did that happen for you? Hmm. What were the resources that you were able to find so you could learn about this stuff? uh, When I say it was delivered to me on a silver platter, I really mean that it was divine providence that there was a divine timing in I had just uh, had a separation from my wife and young children at the time. This is more than 25 years ago. Uh, So I was in a moment of transition and crisis and I was staying, uh, I was uh, staying at a friend's home. And when I suggested the possibility of traveling, well, the the home was in the vicinity of Mount Shasta, California. And I suggested the possibility of going to Lake Tahoe. And uh, the woman I was staying with, uh, Galadriel is her name. She went to her bookshelf and brought out a map, which I call a vortex map. And it was a map showing the Grand Tetons as the center of a nearly perfect circle of 19 significant mountains and bodies of water. And this is a map I later published. I call it Earth Star North America. And in the landscape, 
of North America and all over the world, of course, there are exquisite geometric patterns of energetic points. So I tend to hone in my vortex research, although it is very broad, uh, I tend to hone in on these geometric patterns of sacred places, lines, stars, vesica Pisces, uh, geometries, various kinds of triangles, geometries of sacred places. I, I feel that the there's something about these geometric patterns that mm, reinforces this, uh, we would say, psychic or, or paranormal energy. Hmm. Because when I first started reading your work, when I think of the word vortex, I think of something physical, sort of like a, a whirlwind or a tornado. In this instance, mm -hmm. can you go into a bit more information about what a vortex actually is? Sure. Well, again, I use the term rather broadly <clears throat> in that I believe that there are vortexes everywhere. I take a rather scientific approach to the topic. I like to think that the work I'm doing is the science behind earth magic. So I went and got a degree in geography so I could better understand and explain these things. And to my mind, there's a, a significant component of the phenomena, the vortex phenomena, or what I call the vortex effect. There's a significant component that is electromagnetic, <clears throat> that is geophysical and has to do with these various vibrations and energies of the earth uh, itself and of the atmosphere and of the, of the sky. So uh, I'm looking very uh, directly, as closely as I can, at kind of the interface between biophysics and geophysics, excuse me, <clears throat> the intersection between biophysics and geophysics and how these energies in which we are immersed uh, affect our physiology and our, our psyche. And when we look at the electromagnetic field of the earth, what we see is a highly complex and dynamic electromagnetic field that is nowhere the same. So anywhere we expose ourselves to variations, changes in the surrounding electromagnetic energy field, we affect our physiology. And then in the margins of that very uh, physical, geophysical aspect, then we have uh, consciousness and intentionality, as uh, Sarah Schick was talking about with the hidden bricks. There's there's also this element of intention and uh, perhaps uh, ceremony, prayer uh, that goes into a place. Hmm. So this sort of it, it transcends the physical, basically, it has, it has a physical quality, too, but it goes into the metaphysical as well. I like to think that I'm balancing both brain hemispheres, that I'm taking a scientific approach to something which at heart is really miraculous and magical. So I haven't, I don't, uh, I don't claim to have solved the phenomenon of vortexes, but I, I'm, my research is guided in this very physical uh, way uh, about the physical energies of, of place. So that whether that's a waterfall or just to give, give some unwrap some specific examples, uh, my one of my favorites has to do with uh, the energetic field of lava. So if you are, or perhaps closer to home, there for you might be chalk. 
but whatever kind of uh, geology is under the surface, uh, that's going to affect the literal energy, the geophysical electromagnetic energies on the surface and above the surface. So uh, when I'm talking about vortexes, I'm talking about places that are very close to home. You don't have to go to uh, Mount Everest to experience these changes in energy. They're very palpable, let's say, on any peak, on any shoreline, uh, in any cave. So these are places that uh, physically affect us and also have this uh, often have this magic and ceremonial element wrapped up with that. So just going back to your friend's book that you talked about that mentioned sure. that arrangement of bodies of water and mountains, who wrote that? And was that a book about this particular phenomenon or was it something that related to it? Well, uh, Dorothy Leon wrote a book uh, called Triangles from Mountains, which is available uh, at vortexmaps.com uh, for a dollar. And uh, in fact, anybody who sends an email to me at ask at danshaw.com, I'll send them a free ebook. I've written a number of ebooks on the subject of uh, vortexes. So Dorothy Leon uh, is to thank uh, for my uh, playing a pivotal part in my being introduced to vortexes. And that book, Triangles from Mountains, was about how she uh, starts out, she's in a small aircraft with her husband at the time, and she can actually see lines of energy connecting the mountains in her area, which was Southern Oregon, Northern California. And then through numerology and meditation, she came to recognize this much larger pattern. And then at Vortex Maps, people will see 100 other maps or more uh, visionary maps of various kinds, including a second map, a Vortex Map that I published, which readers may well be familiar with. It's quite well known. It's been around since the 80s, and that is called the, the Earth Star Globe, or sometimes the Becker Hagen's Earth Star Globe. And that's a geometric a representation of the earth, a, a map that folds up into a globe. And it shows the geometric relationship between the Bermuda Triangle, Easter Island, uh, Great Pyramids, etc. So uh, I, at phenomena, I, at first I thought this phenomena was rare. Uh, but uh, over the years of studying it, I just find these visionary maps to be pretty common. There are a lot of these types of visionary maps out there. And I think pointing us to, to these sacred places to do ceremony for, for our physical healing, our psychic opening, and for harmonizing the earth. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to, wanted to talk about the Earth Star Globe because I'm really intrigued by that. With, with obviously the, the earth itself being a squashed sphere and the Earth Star Globe being a geometric shape, how do they relate to each other? How do we interpret the information that we can see on the Earth star globe with the Earth as a sphere? Mm -hmm. The Earth, like everything else in creation, has a geometric nature, I would say, mm -hmm. or a substructure. The, the Earth star globe purports to show that geometric mm, skeleton of the Earth. And in fact, it seems to be an extraordinarily useful model 
uh, of the earth and that the geometry corresponds in a lot of places to deep sea trenches and uh, continental coastlines and other significant geologic features and also uh, ancient monuments, as I mentioned. So uh, it's a useful model of the, let's say the energetic nature of the earth. Um, I'm a little off though. Would you restate your question? Let me answer it directly. Yeah, of course. I think I'm just trying to understand the relationship between the earth star globe and, and a regular globe. Uh, okay, thank you. So mm -hmm. I'd like to, to point out that the, the model is useful to the degree that it's, it's serves the similar purpose to, or it serves the purpose of a myth in the best kind of Joseph Campbell sense of myth in that it helps to give meaning and helps us to orient ourselves to the place. And it is, it's just one model of the energetic structure of the earth. There are others which are maybe equally valid, but we're, when we look at, you know, uh, the continents are moving, the earth is a geoid, it's not a perfect sphere, uh, these things. Accuracy is, I think, secondary, although I'm very much interested in the exquisite accuracy of these maps, I think accuracy is still secondary to this uh, powerful uh, ability to give meaning to our place. Right, okay, yeah, I understand that. So with your work, you talk about, well, obviously ancient sites that have been built on certain places around the globe in relation to this geometry. How do you think those ancient societies discovered this information? Mm. I'm, personally, I'm a believer in advanced ancient civilizations. Uh, I'm, I believe it's possible that these ancient people were so psychically aware that they were able to tap into these geometric and energetic spots because it is it's just beggars all belief uh, or explanation that these ancient civilizations could have built their monuments in such perfect geometric relationship to each other. But so it seems. So you have to assume either they did it consciously or somehow subconsciously. And I believe that we are the uh, basically the relics of some advanced ancient civilization from my years of study. That's that's my personal opinion. Hmm. Are there sites in particular that you feel show this well? I think we're kind of I feel like it's kind of rehashing old territory. I, I sometimes lose track of, you know, how new this is to some listeners. But the the <laughs> exquisite techno uh, technological achievements of ancient civilizations, uh, you know, uh, everywhere around the world. When we find that there are uh, massive hydraulics, uh, hydraulic works everywhere around the world, pyramids everywhere around the world, ancient monuments built with massive stones everywhere around the world. It just, uh, uh, to point to one, it, it seems almost absurd. But then I think we're also... Uh, in a, a kind of a post-catastrophic, post-Diluvian age, perhaps, after the flood, where so many of these ancient monuments, uh, Puma Punku or, or whatever it may be, 
uh, seemingly destroyed by cataclysm and and these vitrified uh, ancient structures that have been uh, basically baked that we don't understand how that happened. I mean, there's just there's so many mysteries. How, how can one not be fascinated? Because hmm. I know that at Puma Punku, there are massive blocks that fit together and there's no mortar. Is that correct? Well, that, but also parts have been reconstructed, but the greater part has been destroyed by some massive catastrophe. The, you know, uh, these blocks, the way they're put together so exquisitely with the uh, so, ma uh, so many different angles, right? We're not talking about rectangular blocks, but we're talking blocks with multiple angles in them, etc., to resist a, a earthquake and cataclysm when you have uh, these ancient with these walls that are built of blocks of different sizes with different cuts in them they're very resistant to earthquakes and so we look at that it's been destroyed we have to wonder you know what kind of cataclysm cataclysm destroyed this ancient monument one of many and and you know the cultural amnesia that we don't, you know, we, we've lost touch with so much of our history through, uh, you know, destruction of one kind or another, whether it was natural cataclysm or war or whatever it was. It does seem like there's a reluctance to engage with these sorts of ideas in mainstream archaeology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think archaeology, like, like everything, evolves uh, rather slowly. Uh, but there's so much um, exciting development in the field. There's so much being literally, you know, uncovered, dug up, uh, and, uh, you know, seen with uh, new remote sensing technology. So a very exciting field to be in, to be looking at, uh, well, really uh, learning from the, the mathematics and geometry of these ancient sites. Mm. So one thing I've wondered is that we're used to having writing and storing information that way. Where, and in ancient civilizations, I get the impression that a lot of the information they held, they held in their minds. Like, and there's a more of an oral tradition of transferring information. Do you think that that's the case based on your research in, in terms of how these civilizations potentially use these earth energies to construct their buildings and, and the sites that we've mentioned? Bam. Okay. Beautiful. So two, two parts there. One is that these, this ancient architecture is kind of a, is a kind of mnemonic device where the, and every part of the structure does tell a story and a history. And the other thing that you've just hit on is that these ancient monuments are built with an awareness of these geophysical energies and the electromagnetic properties of the materials they're built with and they are apparently to all uh, intents built with uh, the 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 intention of manipulating the earth energies so uh, when we we study the monuments we learn about the math the geometry the astro astronomy uh, of the site that's it's so deep and then the materials themselves the material sciences how uh, the, the mounds were built with layers of materials. The pyramids were built with layers of materials. These are materials that have energetic properties and they resemble our modern electronics in the way that they're built, sandwiching dissimilar materials and that kind of thing. Hmm. So we do see, you know, when, when we go to these places, we feel a heightened sense of earth energies. And then when the monuments are built properly, 
they enhance those energies and to what ends. And I have three uh, that I, I hit on, and those are our physical healing, our psychic opening, and for harmonizing the planet. Right. So it's almost like they're building the structures that need to be at these points in order to make them work as best as possible. It, everything is built with purpose relative to this energy field that exists. I would say so. And to take the, an obvious example, uh, when we look at a, a hinge such as Stonehenge, I just want to clarify that the hinge itself refers to a ring and ditch. And then Stonehenge, of course, those uh, exquisite stones. Uh, when we look at a hinge, what we see is a kind of an energetic harbor and you, or a filter. And you could think of this ring and ditch as being very much a kind of a filter for chaotic earth energies. Uh, the surrounding energies being, let's say, incoherent or um, not harmonic. And then a, an opening or more than one opening in that ring and ditch, which allows some energy to come in, but in the way that a filter of water or light or anything else uh, filters out the disharmonious energies and lets in a less chaotic, more, more coherent, harmonious energy. So that, uh, you know, Stonehenge is, or henges in general are just one example of using the earth, using natural materials to build a kind of um, sanctuary to harmonize the earth energies. And then the energies in that hinge, I would suggest charge and discharge in a cyclic way than harmonizing the surrounding landscape. Hmm. Yeah, in modern society, when we think of energy, we, we think of it powering something. So we'll store it in a battery or it will be electricity and it's used to make things go, basically. In this example, with something like Stonehenge, is it more that it's harnessing the energy for a broader use rather than to power devices? It's more to encourage fertility in the land. Is it more that rather than being used as pure technology? I mean, I guess it is technology, but you see what I mean? Is it, is it being used in a grander way for that area rather than to power a light bulb, for example? Not that it would do that, but... Right, right. Well, we, we, you know, we have to remember that uh, we can create an electrical current uh, between any two materials that have different electrical charge just by bridging those two things, whether it's uh, two different trees or two different electrodes, uh, so that uh, these the energies around us that I'm referring to, these geophysical energies, are very real and palpable to some people more than others, for certain. But you know, there's a physiologic reason why we feel wonderful when we are walking barefoot on the beach. We feel elated when we are on a mountaintop. We feel constrained when we're in a narrow valley. There's very real physical reasons for this. There's an, an electrical potential, tremendous electrical potential between the earth and the atmosphere, the electrical part of the atmosphere called the ionosphere. And uh, as, we, as uh, we increase our elevation, uh, as we uh, ascend a hill, 
the electrical potential changes tremendously. Yeah, so all our cells are, we're alive to that experience when we become aware of the possibility of it and we focus our intention on it. We can become more sensitive to these subtle electromagnetic cues in our environment. And those are everywhere. So for example, uh, where magma erupts from the earth and hardens into lava, we get a very uh, unusual kind of electromagnetic field, an anomalous electromagnetic field at that point. And especially where lava has erupted in ancient eons, we have an imprint of a historic magnetic field. So that can be very complex where uh, volcanoes have been erupting over a long period of time. So volcanic landscapes are very electromagnetically rich, for example. But then even chalk, as I mentioned, when rainwater percolates through chalk, certain electrical charges are exchanged. And so those electric, uh, those chalk landscapes can be very electrical as well. Hmm. Okay. So a lot of these sites that you talk about in your books, the civilizations there, how do these earth energies and this system that we're talking about fit in with the pantheon of these civilizations and the, and the gods that they understood to exist and, and worshipped? Uh, do you feel like these entities are expressions of how this system works? Or, or is that not the case? A lot of the time we, we feel like these sites, there's a ceremonial purpose to them as much as a practical one. And I'm just wondering if you get the sense that certain deities reflect a cultural understanding of, of the system that we're talking about. Wow. And that's, these questions are why I'm so glad to be on, on your podcast, because uh, just approaching the, the Vortex research from, from a very different angle. So that, I'm not sure if I can answer that question directly, because it is a little bit on the margins of my focus, really on the Earth energies as a healing tool. But where I think the overlap is in our the Venn diagram of my research and your question. The overlap, I think, is that these places are uh, imbued with a certain divine power, so that uh, when we when we approach a certain place where the earth energy might be more rarefied or or more heightened, when we approach these places with a ceremonial or uh, a spiritual intention, then these are uh, essentially um, places where the veil between worlds is thin. In fact, I had a teacher who would say, there is no other side. So that we can go to, go to these ceremonial landscapes for more direct access to the divine, just as uh, the uh, the Oracle at Delphi was uh, uh, a, a channel, let's say, for that divine wisdom at a very specific place on the earth that had its own unique, uh, let's say, uh, contributors to the vortex effect. So the Oracle at Delphi would be, I think, a wonderful example of that overlap. Hmm. Oh, cool. So, yeah, let's get into the side that you were talking about the healing side. Tell us a little bit about how that works. Yeah, uh, I'm a student of alchemy. So I'm applying all the principles of alchemy to geomancy, which is earth magic. 
So we have to remember that anything that can heal can also kill. Anything that has any potency at all, whether it's a hammer, whatever it is, can be used for good or ill. It can have good or ill effects. So we are not separate from our environment. Uh, and in alchemy, we would say there is no separation whatsoever. And there's certainly no separation between ourselves and our environment. Every cell uh, depends on its electrical processes. And then we expose ourselves to various kinds of electromagnetic environments. It doesn't have to be as dramatic as a thunderstorm. But just as we move from place to place, or just in the natural dynamic churning of this electromagnetic ocean that we live in, uh, our cells are affected. So uh, it's important to be aware of that, to avoid places that might have a bad effect. Maybe notice if you have better dreams in one area of your house than another. Uh, and to, to spend time deeply connecting with places where all these natural forces work together to make us healthier, happier, uh, I would say more psychic. And I'm not sure where I want to go with that, except that I want to encourage your listeners to identify a place near them where they can go to connect deeply with the energies of place. And again, it doesn't have to be Sedona, Arizona or someplace like this, but any place where they feel the, mm, the electromagnetic pollution, the collective consciousness energy is uh, relatively quiet and they can tune into the earth energies. And as you say, for not only for, for, for healing, but for the fertility of the landscape as well, for livestock and for crops, gardens, that's where I want to go. Hmm. I guess we're so used to the modern Western model of society where you treat an illness with medicine and you, you take something. It can be hard to sort of get yourself out of that model and imagine a different type of reality, basically. Do you think that in general people were more healthy when they were in a civilization that understood these earth energies? Mm, you know, I, I'd like to think so. I'm probably romanticizing there, but uh, I know f for myself that I'm healthier when I do connect directly, energetically, even electrically with the landscape, whether it's walking barefoot on wet grass or, or breathing the fog, foggy air or, or whatever it might be. When I'm on the landscape, I'm aware of the possibility of these, these energies and, and how they're impacting me. Then over the years, I've become more sensitive and I, I, you know, I can sense which places are going to be the most comforting, healing, energetic places in, in a landscape. Hmm. Are you aware of Wilhelm Reich? Sure, sure. There's a uh, uh, Oregon Biophysical Research Laboratory in Southern Oregon, in my neighborhood. Uh, researcher James DeMio, who is, I think, wearing the mantle of Wilhelm Reich and uh, you, you're referring to this idea of orgone energy or the, the atmosphere, the, the earth material is just alive with a kind of energy, right, called orgone. Mm. I was just wondering if this connects to your research. It does. In the book, 
uh, Stonehenge gardening tips using earth energies in your garden. I point out that these uh, tumulus uh, or or so-called barrier burial mounds or, or chamber mounds are often built with these alternating layers of materials or dissimilar materials, and that's very much uh, along the lines of what William Wilhelm Reich was doing with building orgone blankets and orgone accumulators out of uh, materials of uh, layers of dissimilar materials, uh, as I was describing with the uh, the pyramid, some pyramids as well. So just to dial right in on that, uh, we know that quartz crystal uh, is, uh, first of all, uh, silica, one of the most abundant materials on the planet. When it's in crystalline form, it has electrical properties. It's called piezoelectric, where under pressure, it actually gives off an electrical charge. So, of course, under the earth, the quartz crystal is actually under pressure. It's electrical. There are electrical currents coursing through the earth that can be measured. Same is true with the ocean. We have dissimilar uh, currents uh, at different temperatures, salinities, different depths. And these uh, create a very complex uh, interaction of electromagnetic forces. And so to, in the atmosphere, we have electrical uh, currents in the atmosphere. So our entire environment is this churning ocean of electromagnetism uh, in which we live. And I think it's blind not to to acknowledge that this has some impact on our our wellness. And, and certainly there's plenty of studies in terms of sun cycles and moon cycles, which do confirm that people do have these you know, internal rhythms uh, that that are, uh, let's say, matched to these these more cosmic rhythms. Right. OK. Connected to that, in your book, Stonehenge Gardening Tips, there are parts where you mentioned how certain monuments are, are aligned to match constellations in the night sky. So, for example, a lot of structures seem to be aligned with Orion, and there are round towers in Ireland that also seem to correspond with uh, constellations. Why do you think that is done? Is is that kind of trying to correspond with a grander geometry in space, or or is it still connected to the geometry that underlies the Earth? Hmm. Well, this is this is certainly part of what I call the vortex effect, in that where we're drawing in through intention and through actual through physicality, through arranging rocks or mounds or towers, monuments, whatever it might be, by arranging perhaps even plants in the pattern of the constellation, you can bring in the energy of that constellation so that uh, if you were to look at your own chart, your, your own natal chart and discover that it uh, maybe was unbalanced in some way, or you wanted uh, to have, uh, you had an empty house, let's say, you could bring in more of that astrological energy by building a ceremonial object, let's say in your home or garden. So it might be uh, mounds, planter boxes in the shape of a certain constellation. And we see that certainly all over the world and, you know, more and more every day as new information comes to me and new information comes to light. We find people planning their cities and et cetera in this uh, 12-fold astrological configuration all over the world, for example. Right. Okay. 
Do you think that vortexes and, and what they what they relate to the this earth energy? Do you think these ancient civilizations could have used it for technology like flying craft? Because I know that sometimes when people discuss the concept of an advanced civilization in deep in Earth's past, it can be tempting to see the word advanced and imagine it is similar to what we have. So we have cars and we have planes and things like that. But do you think that there's a possibility there that these advanced civilizations in the past did have technology like that, but it was powered differently? Because I know that there are, that in, myth- in Indian mythology, there are there are mentions of flying machines and if you look in the mythology of other cultures this is mentioned as well do you think that there's a potential there for those to have been references to real craft well because when i was 14 i had a contact from a some kind of craft i would have to say definitely yes Uh, one of the things that set me on this path of studying the let's say the esoteric the hidden uh, things that people don't talk about openly often, more and more of late, of course. But uh, one of the things that set me off on this path was that uh, I was uh, one night sitting in my parents' backyard and I saw uh, an array of lights that was completely unexplainable, except as some kind of a contact from a UFO. So uh, I have to say, yes, definitely not just in the ancient past, but in the modern day. Uh, and when we look at how rapidly our technology is advancing, uh, to me, it seems a near certainty that, for one, that uh, the UFOs are real, whether they're extraterrestrially or uh, from the inner Earth, I can't, or from the government, I can't say for sure, maybe all three. But uh, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, advanced civilizations in the ancient past and in the present to definitely have something to do with it. Hmm. I just noticed that you mentioned the inner earth there. Is that something that has come up in your research? It has um, in tiny bits because, again, it's at the margin or periphery of vortexes, let's say. So uh, where it's arisen is that um, the earth itself has a fundamental frequency to speak in musical terms. If I were to measure the polar circumference of the earth, in other words, a great circle like an equator, but through the poles, around the earth through the poles, the polar circumference. If I were to measure that, I would end up with a, essentially a frequency, a vibratory rate in cycles per second, really, and or hertz. Um, And then I would find that vortexes all over the world tend to resonate at that frequency. It's some harmonic multiple of that frequency or fraction of that frequency. So that uh, I would find that vortexes all over the world are 54 miles in diameter. So you can, uh, I've taken you a long distance right there. you can find out more in my book, uh, U.S. Vortex is 54 miles wide. But to the point being that the multiples of 54 miles seem to identify vortexes all over the world. So that if you told me that the opening to the inner Earth was a near exact multiple of 54 miles, you would have my attention. And so 
We're talking 108 miles, 216 miles, 2,160 miles. These are all multiples of 54, or essentially harmonics of the polar circumference, the fundamental frequency of the Earth. So I, I, if there is an inner Earth with an opening, I expect it's going to be 2,160 miles. Right, okay. Because I, I, it does seem like these vortexes and Earth energies and how they operate, they could offer an explanation for quite a, a lot of paranormal phenomena. Where you live in the Pacific Northwest, of course, there are reports of Bigfoot and creatures like that. And I'm the way that Bigfoot sightings happen, and they're, they're very unusual. It seems like no one's ever found a body, and they almost appear out of nowhere, really. How would a vortex act like a portal? How would that work? Yeah, uh, not to dance around the question at all. The sightings of apparitions, cryptozoologic creatures such as Bigfoot, uh, Nessie, uh, Loch Ness, uh, and UFOs, Chupacabra. There does these things do occur everywhere on the one hand, but on the other hand, there does seem to be a correlation with vortexes. So that, for example, there's actually a number of tourist attractions around the U.S. that are open as vortexes. Uh, and uh, there are eight of them that are actually genuine electromagnetic anomalies. And I spent a couple summers working at a spot as a tour guide called the Montana Vortex very near Glacier National Park. And there are any number of contributors to that anomalous electromagnetic field there on the edge of the Flathead River where probably placer gold has been deposited. Uh, at the, uh, in the, at that place, there are sightings of orbs, sightings of cryptic creatures such as Bigfoot, Thunderbirds, UFOs, and so at these vortexes, at these genuine electromagnetic anomalies, it's going to affect our brains. And uh, it may well um, light up like a lighthouse for beings who maybe have uh, senses beyond our narrow vision. Uh, let's say birds who have a kind of an electromagnetic vision. Maybe they can see those vortexes in a different way. So maybe these other creatures are using the energies of the place or... Uh, the the coordinates of the place as uh, part of their network of transportation. Hmm. I'm just thinking of Skinwalker Ranch down, I think it's in Utah. Just wondering if there's a vortex there. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, like uh, from my standpoint now, there are vortexes everywhere because it's wherever the electromagnetic field is anomalous and we're most likely to feel that energy as we cross from one kind of energy to another at that interface. And so certainly Skinwalker Ranch would seem to be a hot spot of paranormal activity. And next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to look at that with, let's say, geographer's eyes. I'll open up my Google Earth and everything else and look at the various maps I have and see if I can identify uh, geographic, maybe topographic, maybe subsurface features that might contribute to the vortex effect. Again, and my desire to be somewhat rigorous and scientific about this research, if somebody tells me, mm, I think this is a vortex, then I'm gonna look for 
other things to confirm, secondary other sources to confirm whether or not that looks like a vortex to me from an electromagnetic and geometric standpoint. So I think I'll take a look at Skinwalker Ranch. Oh, yeah, cool. Are there many other people doing work similar to yours? Well, because I describe my work so broadly, uh, definitely, uh, you know, I have my own particular interest. Uh, I've kind of uh, grabbed the word vortex and run with it. But uh, to, it just brings me into contact with so many different avenues, as we've already covered, uh, we, you know, the built monuments, the cryptic creatures, the astrology and astronomy of a place, the geometry. It's just uh, can be can be very broad. Uh, and that's why I've tried to hone in on these, uh, the visionary maps and the healing effects of, of vortexes, because every researcher comes to vortexes from a different angle. And my angle has been this, uh, you know, the, how can we use these energies for healing our physical bodies? But I have a close friend and, and co-author who, uh, Nick Nelson, who he's come to vortex research because he believes that uh, these energetic points could hold the key to building a magnetic motor. Right. That'd be amazing. It, it would be. It would be. So would that almost be like free energy? Well, yes and no, right? But if you if you had a place, uh, if you had a technology that actually drew energy from the place, I'm not sure how you would use that for transportation to take you from place to place because it would kind of be energy dependent, almost like a poltergeist that's anchored to a place. Mm. It just makes me think of some of the work that Nikola Tesla was doing with harmonics. Do you think... Mm -hmm. Did he have an awareness of, of this system, this electromagnetism? Absolutely did. Absolutely did. Uh, there's, uh, you know, he had methods for transmitting uh, electrical currents through the atmosphere. And uh, I mentioned that in my book, U.S. Vortex is 54 miles wide. He does seem to direct and also misdirect uh, us in his patents in terms of what frequencies are necessary to propagate um, electromagnetic uh, signals through the atmosphere. So he does seem to have been aware of that. He, of course, built that Tesla tower in the Rocky Mountains where there's, a, you know, the continental divide where there's tremendous mm. earth energies going on uh, in the geology, in the subsurface and in the topography. So um, I, do, I do use the Tesla patent as part of my supporting materials in in um, um, suggesting that the polar circumference of the earth is this kind of fundamental frequency for vortexes everywhere. Hmm. Do you find there's any resistance to the research you do from like mainstream science? All the time. Sure, sure. In fact, I'm real proud of my older brother who has a PhD in theoretical physics from Cornell. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, we often disagree, agree to disagree, he and I. But, uh, of, you know, we are moving uh, from one uh, scientific revolution to another. We, you know, we're, we're uh, not too long ago, uh, figured out, uh, began to figure out chemistry. And uh, of course, chemicals have their electrical properties to them. It's just going to take a bit of a scientific revolution for the chemists to come along to to looking at energy or electromagnetic medicine. Yeah, I, 
So, uh, it's, sorry, go ahead. Well, as you're saying, it's it can be shocking uh, when you when you broach the subject with someone who you think uh, might not be very receptive, and, and then as often happens, they'll say, "But my uncle was a dowser," and then of course you're you're right on board, and you can just figure out, you know. If that's their entry point, you know, how to broaden it out to earth energies in general and psychic dowsing and that kind of thing. Yeah, it, it does seem like every every now and again, mainstream science will come out and acknowledge something that's a little bit more esoteric. So they'll start kind of acknowledging that perhaps consciousness is the fundamental makeup of the universe. You know, like they'll be more into that and panpsychism and things like that. They'll kind of qualify it, I think, a bit, but it, it does seem like there's more of an ability for people to have these ideas and not fear that they're going to lose their jobs. Well, uh, it does. In order to accept one of these ideas, often what it calls into question all of a person's other ideas. Yeah. So it is, it's kind of, you might call it the crack in the cosmic egg. Uh, it is very, it's, of course, terrifying to the ego to to accept one of these possibilities. But uh, uh, as I say, once I uh, had my my UFO contact experience, uh, for example, uh, it's true for anyone, once, once one has one of these spiritual emergencies, uh, it calls everything into question. And so you know, we're lucky if that doesn't uh, create a psychotic break, but if we can actually uh, integrate it uh, productively and constructively, if we can integrate that spiritual emergency into our everyday lives, um, then we can move forward. But some people, you know, they have an experience, they see a Bigfoot or whatever it is, and they never integrate it and they just kind of get stuck there. Hmm. So what are you working on currently with your research? Hmm. Well, uh, my research has taken a turn towards what I, I think of as psychogeography in terms of how people think of their place. So uh, I try not to be reductionist and uh, think that I've figured, figured out how vortexes work and that it's purely electromagnetic. No, uh, there's, there's a, an element of consciousness and how we, how we are in, in our place, how we connect to it, how we orient ourselves to place, and so that um, there are there's certain ceremonial protocols that I I would share and encourage people to to again choose a spot close to them that they feel is relatively pristine, and to uh, to purposefully make a pilgrimage to that place to to prepare to go there by perhaps putting on fresh clothes or whatever it might be to bring some kind of offering that uh, would not be out of place there and to take off one's shoes upon arriving at the place to uh, be mindful there, maybe leave the electronics at home to then maybe uh, bring a trash bag and take home, take home a little micro trash or whatever it might be uh, so that there's ceremonial protocols for connecting with our place and, um, and there's a, there's a physical effect and a much more subtle non-physical effect, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that sounds like a nice ritual to have. And I, I imagine that would get you more into the mindset to be able to feel this energy. 
people often make elaborate uh, preparations to go to some distant place. And, and what I'm encouraging is that people can uh, perhaps allow themselves to have many, if not all, of the same benefits and more from uh, identifying some local place that you can get to more readily. And uh, perhaps it's a place where uh, there's a little wild edibles growing where you could perhaps uh, eat a little of the wild edibles, drink the water if it's potable, breathe the air. Uh, maybe expose yourself to moonlight, um, uh, you know, whatever ceremonies, uh, belief systems people engage in, uh, to do that um, in relationship to our place. I think that's where kind of the rubber hits the road for, for separating out vortexes from the rest of the paranormal landscape, I guess, <laughs> is that these where, where these healing energies and psychic experiences are anchored in the landscape, I guess, has been my focus. Hmm. No, that sounds really interesting. Well, Dan, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's my great pleasure. Thank you for, for your fantastic work. I'm, I'm loving listening to your podcast. Oh, thank you. So if people want to find out more about yourself and your work, how best do they do that? They can find me at vortexmaps.com. I'll answer all emails. And in fact, I'll reply with a free ebook when you send me an email. Brilliant. Well, I'll make sure to put all that in the show notes. Okay. Thanks very much for your great work. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dan. His research into Earth energies is really interesting and connects with a wide range of Fortean subjects. There was so much more we could have talked about. Hopefully though, this episode has whetted your appetite to find out more about his work. If it did, then of course you should visit his websites, as they contain a real treasure trove of information related to his work. And of course you can also email him to get the free book he mentioned, which is a very kind offer. That's all for now. As ever, if you'd like to get in touch with me at SphereHQ, please email someothersphere at gmail.com. You can find Some Other Sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and on most of the well-known podcast platforms. Ratings and reviews are very much appreciated. Until next time, stay safe and thank you very much for listening.